This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 653 with Sonora Jaw. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 653. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Sonora Jaw is the author of the memoir, How to Raise a Feminist Son, and the novel, Foreign. After a career as a journalist covering crime, politics, and culture in India and Singapore, she moved to the United States to earn a PhD in media and public affairs. Sonora's op-eds, essays, and public appearances have been featured in the New York Times, on BBC, and elsewhere. She is a professor of journalism and lives in Seattle. So I recently discovered Sonora and her book, How to Raise a Feminist Son on Instagram, where I find all the best things. <laughs> and I got her audiobook and was immediately hooked by like the end of the introduction. I was hooked on this book. Sonora is a phenomenal t- storyteller and truth teller. And she is a magical combination of professor, comedian, and friend as she digs into her life as a single mom who left India to bring her son to Seattle and intentionally, thoughtfully raise him as a feminist as she built a family around them. I could not be more excited and delighted to be sharing Sonora with you all today. So listen in to hear Sonora share how her 27-year-old son is showing up as an activist today for women's rights. What inspired her book, How to Raise a Feminist Son? How raising her son in the dark at the movies launched her and her son as a family unit into the world. How she intentionally built a family around her and her son that did not 
necessarily include blood-related relatives, why feminists can and should include men in their activism, and how we might need to check our biases and assumptions that men aren't open to being feminists, how she defined and redefined motherhood in order to raise a feminist son, and why it is important for men and boys to be intersectional feminists. Oh my goodness, Sonora is, uh, she's so brilliant and talented in so many ways. I'm really, really excited for you to listen to, into this conversation. And I really, really want you to go get her book. I've been listening to the audio. It is absolutely incredible. I'm learning so much, but also just, I can't believe, and we talk about this in the interview, I can't believe how many laugh out loud moments there are in this book. It's such a good book, such a good book, so many great stories, and just so many tangible lessons and ideas for how we can really be thoughtfully, intentionally building families, building family units, raising feminist sons, including men in feminism, so many takeaways all around. So with all of that, please join me in welcoming Sonora Jaw to the Shameless Mom Academy. Sonora, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here. As I was telling you before we started to record, I'm mad that I only just learned of you because you are in Seattle, you're a Seattle mom, and you've written this book, How to Raise a Feminist Son. And I feel like I should have known a year ago when this book originally came out. So I'm so excited to support the launch of the paperback version now. And we have to like make up for lost time. Thank you. And yeah, it's never too early, never too late, right? For this kind of thing. So yeah, thank you. Exactly, exactly. So I always like to ask my guests as we start off, to tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio. And what are you most excited about right now? Mm, Wow. Nice. Well, I'm excited that I just turned 54 and there's something really fierce and amazing. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. There's something really fierce and amazing about this decade of our lives, you know, like fifties, you think it's your forties, but really gosh, the fifties are just incredible. And so there's a lot of lovely things happening. You mentioned the paperback launch of uh, the how to raise a feminist son. And that's this month. My son turns 27 this month, which is just like, oh my goodness, you know, but still needs a little bit of a nudge every now and then in feminism and is also teaching me a lot of feminism. So, you know, I can really see the stuff paying off. Like he organized the protests yesterday and he lives in LA and he was part of organizing the protests for the socialist alternative that he works with and volunteers with. And his activism is really deep rooted in feminism. So that's really exciting for me to see and to get inspired by, you know, so that's happening. And then I have a new novel coming out in January, 2023. So my writing life is just very satisfying right now that my motherhood is very satisfying. And even in terms of my professional life, you know, maybe the big love of my life is going to come and I can actually say that shamelessly, like, you know, not have to sort of I love it. <laughs> edit myself. So a lot of these lovely things that are sort of converging in my early mid fifties that I hadn't even imagined as, you know, as a life of thriving, a time of thriving for a woman. So very cool. I want to clarify for people, the timing of this interview, because this is really important and you already made reference. So on we're recording this or on a Wednesday on Monday night of this week is when we, the media got wind of Roe v. Wade potentially slash likely being overturned. And so I know you were at Seattle yesterday at a March and thank you for that. And your son. So when you talk about your son organizing and leading and stepping in as an activist, here is your, like, is there a bigger Testament to your work than having your son who's you said, 27 year old male 
being down in LA spearheading a march for abortion rights for women (laughs) to, you know, within 24 hours of this news coming down the pipeline. Absolutely. Right. I mean, that just, it's sort of like a, yeah, it's very, very satisfying. And so, I mean, I gave myself permission to cry a few tears of joy and, you know, and sadness and all those emotions, right. That I wish he didn't have to do that, but also here's a child. I had the choice to have him. I had a choice to have this baby and he understands women's choices Mm -hmm. and respects them so much so that he's out there fighting for them. You know, that just gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. And this is the hope that we need right now (laughs) because it's easy to not find hope. (laughs) So we really do have to look to like, where can we, where are we looking to make sure that we do find hope? Cause that's going to, going to be what keeps us going. Yeah. So your book is a powerful call to action for mothers of sons. Can you tell us what inspired you to write it? Yeah. Thank you. Well, the fact that I was raising a feminist son and how it felt like, you know, little magical moments of seeing what that means in the world, what that means to my own healing, what that means as a conversation I want to have with other parents, with other people, that sort of started converging as I was writing a memoir. So I, you know, I'd written a novel and then I was writing a memoir and I knew it was going to be a mother-son memoir. And as I was writing it, I wasn't getting like to the heart of it and figuring out what is it that I want to write about? What's the story, right? And then I would find myself writing these political essays and op-eds on the Me Too movement and, you know, masculinity and race and gender and, and all these intersections and writing with a lot of passion around that and getting a huge response from across the world because I was also writing about Indian womanhood. I'm from India. And I realized like I have so much of a charge around that and that the response from people, the hunger for these conversations about how are we talking to our boys? Because in each of these op-eds and political essays, I was getting more and more personal about my own life and my life with my son. And so I realized, oh my goodness, this memoir, this book has to be about this central thing that I have focused on in my life, which is to raise a feminist son. And so I decided I was going to share those stories and share some of my tips or whatever, but also share some of the mistakes and the missteps, which I feel like a lot of other people don't need to make. And, you know, so I wrote this book for other parents, for other women about how to lead a feminist life, not just about how to raise a feminist son or, you know, those two are not uh, separate from each other. Yeah. So that's how the book came about. I'm listening to the book right now and it's so incredible. And what I love about it, and I caught this in the first chapter, it might've even been in the, before the first chapter in the introduction, I expected like a really great to-do list of like, here's how to do it. And I knew that there'd be some story because it's a memoir as well. What I didn't expect was the edginess and like some swearing and it's like, (laughs) there is so much about it. That's so relatable. I feel like as I'm listening, I'm like, oh, I'm like hanging out with my mom friend who has like really similar core values. And we're just like figuring out all this like mess together and acknowledging that there's not just one way and it's going to be really messy and we're going to screw up a million times. And even in, and we'll talk about bad feminism as I'm making air quotes right now in a minute, but like all the ways that we trip over ourselves and get in our own ways and yet still follow our core values and still listen to like how we want to show up in a situation and lead with integrity and lead with, you know, the person that we are becoming or the person that we want to be in the world and what we're modeling to our children in all those different ways. So I didn't expect to have so much fun listening to the story and feel like I'm just like hanging out with a friend. I was expecting to like kind of feel lectured to 
which I was prepared for. I was like, I'm in it. Like, let's give me the list. And instead I'm like, oh no, I'm hanging out with my friend. who's like reminding me how this can be done, but done in a messy and perfect way. Right. And that's probably where the efforts come from because that's how I was writing it. Which I loved it. It was so perfect. (laughs) Or it is so perfect. Like, right. I mean, I don't know if I know of any mom that doesn't let loose a few profanities around the kids even, you know, and saying, oops, oops, I did it, you shouldn't. (laughs) But yeah, I really did see it as a conversation that I'm having with other moms, with other dads, with, you know, people across the gender spectrum and really expanding out from there. But it has to be conversational and also show the missteps, right? It was important for me to be vulnerable and kind of, you know, in that's the memoir element of it, but mm-hmm. show the ways in which I can go wrong. And as you said, you know, be a bad feminist, but get up and say, oh gosh, I can do better. Yeah. So. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, so at the beginning of the book, there's, you really build this foundation for you and your relationship with your son and his be early becoming around raising your son in the dark. And what that meant was raising him basically in movie theaters. <laughs> this was this really significant cornerstone of your identity together as mother son. Can you talk a bit about that and where, like how that was a cornerstone of your relationship and launched both of you? Yeah, thank you. I, you know, that's the sort of the prologue of my book, right? Answers as the first chapter as an introduction to both him and me as a unit, you know, because mm-hmm. the movies were where we found ourselves in some ways while everything in our own lives was sort of falling apart. I mean, you know, I had started out wanting to do all the right things. I get married at 23, have a job. I'm a great working mom. I have this baby, you know, and a son is so valued in India. I have a son, you know, not that I, that, that I had any control over that, but, you know, I'm looking good. Like life is looking really good. And then of course we moved to Singapore. Marriage starts to fall apart. And then, you know, all these other things happen. And we're in a car accident. My ankle's broken and my second marriage falls apart. But all through all these moments and these tribulations in our life, we had the movies, you know, so there's a huge movie going tradition in India. Mm. So I'd already grown up around that. And I knew that any child of mine is going to love the movies. And so I started taking him to the movies when he was one year old. And actually, my kid was very quiet at the movies, unlike other kids, you know. Yeah, so- I'm impressed with this quiet one year old. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> right. It's not like he was quiet in other circumstances, but with the movies, I mean, he probably picked up something from me, right? Like this is something we need to respect. And, mm-hmm. you know, we fall silent and we watch this movie and whatever he was able to make of what was going on, it was remarkable. So, you know, I just made that a tradition that we do that together because I, you know, I had all these things with my legs. And as I mentioned, I had polio as a a child and then a car accident and things. So I wasn't one of those physically active moms that's going to be doing all these things with him. So the movies was our activity, but it also gave me this incredible gift of stories, right? Mm -hmm. So of course there's reading and I was encouraging him to read and he's a huge reader. And so was I, but so am I, not just not was I. (laughs) (laughs) But the movies is something we could do together. And it was an outing, you know, so it's not like just watching television at home, which we also did. But but it was this thing to do together. And so and then at the movies, we had all these stories, right? So right from the start, like movies like even in Jungle Book, which we watched at home over and over again, you know how kids do that. You know, I was I said, like, oh, it looks like this whole story, all the characters are male, except for the snake, who's a slimy and sneaky, terrible person or terrible character. 
and so why is that right like talking about little things like that nudging you know again not like coming down hard or lecturing in some terrible way but just sort of like saying oh i wonder why this is or you know why do we only follow the story of men or what happened to that woman who came into the movie and is gone now and so you know and then we had things like the bechdel test which is about you know well, who are the characters uh, what are women characters doing on screen are they only talking about their love lives etc there's a whole Yeah, I was not familiar questions. with that test. And when yeah. you mentioned it in the book, I was like, oh my gosh, now I'm going to watch every movie with this. So can you just, it's counting how many conversations female roles have right. that are only related to their love interest, right? Yeah. So how many women are in the movie, in the film, right? Uh, what are the conversations that they are having in the film? Um, you know, it's basically seeing like, what is their pursuit? Are they talking mostly about men, right? And you go from there and you notice that Oh my goodness and so many of the films even like whether it's rom-coms and it's supposed to be for women it's chick flick blah 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 it's still focused on finding love finding men you know blah 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 mm-hmm. but movies like frozen that's why you know for for kids was so refreshing because it's about sisters love for each other and really not focused on the men in their lives it's about finding their self actualization right so we'd have these conversations and because i'm also a media professor you know i knew some of the tools to bring in around those conversations and so i share that in my book as you've seen you know what are we and co-viewing which is where you sit and you watch television or films with your kid and sort of have these conversations around that because then you're not sort of like bringing something out of nowhere you know whether it's it starts with representation then about sexuality gender you know as the boy grows up as the child grows up you start to have more and more complex conversations so much so that it was such a natural part of, of for him to be laughing at some of these tropes and saying oh my god look at that guy he's acting so toxic right mm, or oh yeah. uh, mama have you heard of this concept called fridging where you know literally when a woman you know in a superhero story his girlfriend was chopped into pieces and put in the fridge or killed and put into the refrigerator and then he goes out to avenger and so literally a woman is frozen out of the story you know and so i was not um, aware of this phenomenon <laughs> right i know but then when you think back it's like so much of it is about avenging the woman like all the yeah. taken things are going to rescue her so we're still doing all the same tropes of like fairy tales and things and so you know him telling me about that and then telling me oh you should watch this show like in treatment with uzoduba a black woman is the central character and is oh. not even calling it out as like feminism or i'm being like this good feminist just telling you it's just mm-hmm. what he's drawn to yes. and those are the stories he wants to excitedly talk about and so yes. to me that's like stories are so powerful and film is such a powerful medium that it became a place where we were doing feminism while not doing feminism you know Yeah, I've watched yeah. that season of In Treatment and it was phenomenal. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> oh I goodness. love it. Yes. Yeah. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. And they're specifically designed to combat 
chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listener can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this is, show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily. It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Urtube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. I want to touch on, and you mentioned this is, so in the movies and in the dark is when you're, you and your son really became this family unit. Of course, initially you were in India and you had other family around you. And what I loved about the book and thought was so important and significant and a really crucial message for everyone is that you ultimately end up having a bit of an identity crisis around your construct as a family and get to a point of recognizing and really owning that okay, I'm going to intentionally walk away from a whole bunch of people in my family for various reasons, which you're welcome to share in a moment if, to whatever extent you want. And then on the flip side of that, you recognize I'm going to walk away from these people and I'm going to invite some other people in. Like, how am I going to intentionally build a family around this unit? So this unit of you and your son in the dark then expands in a really intentional and thoughtful way. And my son is part of a really small family. We don't have family that lives. It's my only child. And then my husband and I, we don't have family right here in town with us. And we've been really intentional in a lot of ways around like, okay, if it's going to be this little unit of three, 
what's the extension of that? Who gets to be in and who gets to be like in the inner circle and really close. And we've made choices around that, that have been really significant. And I, you did the exact same thing around deciding what your identity as a family is going to be and creating that conscientiously by choice, not having it be determined by bloodline or have it be limited by bloodline. So can you talk about the family that you built for you and your son and kind of some of the process around that? Yeah. So, you know, as I said, I started out wanting like this perfect Indian woman life, right? Of a, of a job and a kid and a family. And so my dream at the time when he was born was with my husband and his sister and brother that we would all live together. They used to tease me about that. You know, there was a film with that name and they would tease me about how I wanted this whole like extended family situation. And we were all going to have our kids at the same time and raise our kids together you know, adjoining plots of land where we were building our homes and things like that. And so this life that I have now, you know, just my son and me in this country alone was never something that I, it would be a nightmare for me. You know, I thought that, oh my goodness, it could be nothing worse, right? But when it so happened that I ended up here and I decided, okay, I'm going to raise my son here because the other thing was, of course, my own family, my uh, birth family, like, you know, my biological, my family in India, there's a lot of violence. My father's a violent man. My brother's a violent man. Uh, You know, my mother's sort of caught up in that, you know, sort of uh, enabling of my brother's violence. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. And I really didn't want my son. I, I could see my son being raised in that environment and thinking that it was okay, that it was normalized. Right. And so when I decided I was going to live in the U.S., it became sort of this exciting prospect, but also really chilling. The idea that, okay, he and I are just going to be here in Seattle alone. And what do I do about that? That's across the world from your comfort zone. Even if your comfort zone had a lot of discomfort in it, that's still really scary. Right, exactly. And it's, you know, and and women are not supposed to end up alone and they're not supposed Mm -hmm. to have their kids be alone and without a man and in all of that. So what's that in the early years when after I moved to Seattle, just I didn't know anyone in the city at all. And I moved from my job as an assistant professor at Seattle University. And the thing that happened was I made a list of like make friends, like to do list, right? And one of them was make friends fast, right? And I was just so That's like a really hard to do item because there's so much that you don't have control over, but I love the aspiration. (laughs) Right. I know, but it's like, okay, how do I do that? Right. So I was just very, very fortunate because upstairs from me lived another Mm -hmm. single mom and she sort of like took me under her wing. We became really close friends. And really the single mom network was my first network in Seattle because it was through the school. We were all helping each other out. Like, okay, you pick up the kids today and take them to your home because I'm going to be late at work and, you know, settle them down, start their homework. And then the other moms come pick up their kids. And we had different days. We were sort of doing this thing of supporting each other through these things or someone's got a date. And so, yeah, drop your kid off at my place, you know, that kind of thing. And then I started to sort of feel, so all these, these friends, you know, the friend circle really grew. And so my son has seen that he's seen friends be like family and seen me be loyal to my friends and really rely on them and see this network of like everything goes, they come sleep over like in and out of each other's homes, picking, you know, going into each other's fridge and taking whatever you want, you know, it was important. So he now is a very loyal friend and he sees them as family. He's like, you know, there for them. He's able to pick up the phone and call them when he needs something. 
we don't operate as separate from this extended group of family. And then, of course, there was this pressure like, okay, what about men? Like, there should be a male figure. What do I do about that? Right. And so I put him in the Boy Scouts and we just lucked out because even all the problematic parts of that institution, the Boy Scouts of America, even for all those things, there were some really good men in that troop that he was in. And he really benefited from that in Queen Anne in Seattle. And that was uh, Troop 70 and Troop 72, I must call a shout out to them. It was really lovely to have that influence. And then, of course, I remarried and there was, you know, my second husband, his stepdad. And for many years we were dating. He was a good influence in many ways until there were all these issues of race uh, that came up. And but, you know, the core of that and why the book is called is uh, focused also on the making of my family was that I didn't see my son and me as an individual unit, as a family, just that the two of us, can I call us? Even today, mm-hmm. I hesitate to say, you know, my family and me and me and my son, and I'm still getting used to it. And I want us to, you know, all these different iterations of family, right? Same sex yeah. uh, couples having kids, you know, all these different ways in which we have family, chosen family, all of those are family. And I, I mm-hmm. feel like, I'm trying to get more comfortable to just say my son and I are family and it's getting better. I'm getting better at that. And I want us all to claim those different things and change our perception of family. It's not mother, father, two kids. And that's just one example of all the social constructs that we feel like we have to like be limited by. And then we're like, oh, but my version looks a little different. And so do I still fit in or does this count or do I matter or do like, do we qualify in a certain way? And so there's like so many mental gymnastics around that. I think it's really important, especially given everything that we have been through in the last couple of years that we recognize all the different ways that people show up in the world and all the different ways that and honor everyone's different lived experience and how they're sitting with that in any given moment. And so whether that's, you know, you have the example of struggling around identifying as a family unit and other people might be, you know, struggling around like what their mental health looks like right now after two years in a pandemic, just all these different ways where we all have pieces of our identity that we're constantly checking, double checking and trying to figure out like, where do I fit in and how do I matter? And do I matter? And Mm -hmm. sometimes that's a lifelong journey. And for you, you know, you've had your son for 27 years and you're still looking at where do we fit in and how do we fit in and do we fit this definition and what does that look like? So I appreciate you right. bringing that up. Cause I think that's a level of vulnerability. That's really important as we are letting ourselves show up in the world in all of its wildness right now. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back to the boy Scouts just for a minute, because I think this is an important thing to bring up whenever there's a conversation about feminism, because it's so easy and tempting to mm-hmm decide and define that like, well, all men are just bad and they don't even know. And they, no one's looking out for us. And we, it's like, and you can find a million examples to support that. And especially this week after like this whole Supreme court leak where you're like, yeah, the men really don't care. They really don't. And you did such a beautiful job of saying like, Hey, the boy scouts, like, and you in the book laid out, like, here's the things where they really drop the ball, like in big, significant, very harmful ways. And also what can coexist with that is that there were these dads and you listed them by name and you're like Jim Mm -hmm. and Tom and Chad and whoever. And you're like, they filled this gap for my son for which I'm eternally grateful. Mm -hmm. And so you said, you're like, there's some really good men out there. And I think that Mm -hmm. we need to continually go back to that because I think that when we're in this role of activism, 
it's easy to put people in boxes and look at a certain demographic and be like, they're not supportive because of one thing. And then these people, like, these are our people and these are not. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more gray area than we think. I think in a lot of cases. Yeah. And that's that, you know, as you said, like it's activism, but activism Mm -hmm. can do nothing without hope. Right. Right. And it's the hope that keeps me engaged. I mean, if I'm going to write a whole book on how to raise a feminist son, I have to believe that there are people who are willing to do that and are willing to overturn things. You know, I was having this conversation yesterday with a friend I've reconnected with, a man that I knew in my teenage years, and we've reconnected across continents. And I was talking to him about explaining the whole role we weighed, like seriously, trying to explain that to someone. It's just like (laughs) mind-boggling, right? Right. what, What is happening in America? Are you kidding me? Like, you know, And then from there, we started talking about things like consent and women's bodies. And he was talking about how because of his young daughter, who's a feminist, she's sort of alerted him to a lot of things. And he said, you know, it struck me how I wouldn't have ever had to think about these things unless someone sat me down and said, no, you can do better. And he said, I'm becoming a better man because she's telling me you're talking to me. But it's remarkable how society is not calling upon me. And I've never been sort of pushed to do better and that I could just float along, be this guy and be, you know, do toxic things in the world and not have to change. Right. And so it's almost like it it made me think of how men are waiting to be called on to do better. Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many men who are like, yeah, please tell me, please teach me this. And so if we don't, if we rule out all of that, yes, of course, there are men who are doing terrible harm and I wouldn't want to engage. Right. So it's not something like I'm not doing the lean in kind of philosophy of like, oh, you know, let's get everyone on board. No, some people, I'm not asking us to be take risks and to sort of do harm to ourselves or engage with someone who could be toxic to us and us even with microaggressions or anything. Right. I want us to take care of ourselves or whoever I mean by ourselves. It could be anyone trying to raise feminist men or talk to men about feminism. But also, if we're able to see that someone is ready and can do this much, I think it's a great thing. And we haven't thought about the fact that we can call men in into this enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the ways you redefined motherhood in order to raise a feminist son? Oh, so much redefinition. (laughs) I had to redefine hugely. So there's a chapter in the book, What Would the Goddesses Do? Where I talk about, you know, when I'm like thrashing about trying to figure out, okay, how should I be a mom? There were all these mythologies of the mom in my culture, in Hinduism, and in my religion and culture. And um, there was these stories of like these myth moms of these goddesses who were raising sons, you know? And so I started thinking first about those and I had to twist and turn them because I didn't want some of the patriarchal elements in them of the perfect mom, but I wanted some of the strengths that these women, these goddesses embodied and the things that they called upon their sons to do. Like one of the mothers, like she built this, you know, developed this child out of her own herself, right? Without the help of, which is such an interesting concept without the help of of her husband. And then she said, I'm going to take a bath and you stand at the door and don't let anyone in. And so he'd never met his father. So when the father comes back or the, you know, her husband, when he comes back from battle or whatever, he's trying to come in and he says, no, my mother's taking a bath. You're not allowed to come in. And so, you know, so that I see as like, she's doing self-care and she's instructed her son 
that no, I'm not giving consent for anyone to walk in in my self care rituals. And mm-hmm. so, and he's defending her and and sort of like standing up for her rights and saying, no, she is doing self care. You dare not come in. So you know things like that really inspired me, and I was like, I'm going to be a self actualizing mom. I'm not going to be a self sacrificing mom, right? Mm. And of course, we will have the sacrifice when our, our kid is ill. We will you know, bend over backwards is all of that, right? Like we're capable of that. Not everyone has, should be having to do it. Right. But of course there were times when I was doing that and was, you know, sacrificing things, but I, my central thing was I'm going to be self-actualizing and talk about being shameless. I'm going to, you know, all I was told my brother used to call me selfish when I was growing up, you mm-hmm. know, and it was so not true because I know that I was so sacrificing I was a good girl I was just like always thinking of others and all of that but I so internalized that word selfish that I was very careful not to be selfish and then I was like no go to hell I am going to be selfish you know (laughs) and in that selfishness was my son's raising as well like he was it didn't seem to him like I was selfish like he never would use that term for me he would never use narcissist for me or, you know, any of these things where women are put down by using these words, right? Mm-hmm. But be a better mom, you know, think only of your kids, right? So I'm going, I'm getting a PhD. I'm, a, you know, I'm working in graduate school and my kid is with me, you know, I'm rushing about, I have to go to the spectator, like, which is the campus newspaper meeting, my kid's going to go with me, and he's going to sit there and eat cold pizza, right? I'm not going to be cooking these elaborate meals. There were times when I did that. But, you know, I'm not going to be doing this whole motherhood game or the performance of it. And the kid is coming along for the ride, right? I am Mm -hmm. going to remarry, I'm going to date, I'm going to do, I'm going to live life to the fullest. And if my son sees that and he sees the love, of course, I love him and I'm taking care of him as I do this, then he's going to believe that that is what womanhood is, right? So in that way, I'm defining, redefining motherhood for myself. I'm redefining it for him and I'm redefining womanhood for him as well. So good. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. 
I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I have to tell the story of Victoria. I think it's Victoria. Is Victoria the... So you made up a bedtime story for your son at some point. And you start telling him this bedtime story about Victoria and she, Victoria is a total badass. And yeah. you go through this like whole story one night at bedtime and he has questions at the end. He's like, well, like what's the follow-up? So then you continue <laughs> with this character and this becomes like your, your bedtime routine that you're just routinely sharing like more stories about Victoria and you get to create <laughs> who Victoria is along the way. And my son's nine and a half now and doesn't want to hear me to tell him bedtime stories. And I'm so mad <laughs> that I think to right? do this because like, what a cool idea and what impact to create something that you, and ultimately you're probably kind of co-creating because he's asking questions and that's probably guiding what you're thinking of for the next night or the next time you share more of a story. Yeah. Um, and I thought what an incredible tradition and special memory and talk about redefining motherhood. Like we don't even need to pick up a book and try to edit it in a certain way or rewrite the story in a certain way or explain something because you're doing that just in the way that you choose to build a story for him, which I thought was so brilliant. Great. Yeah. Thank you. And also the fact that I wanted to center a girl in that story, right? Like it's not like he needs to see himself reflected in every little thing because the world is going to do that for him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And you mentioned that in a couple of different places where you're like, the world's already going to center him. So I don't like, he needs to see the other people being centered or I need to center other people or center myself because right. he's going to be, and I've had that conversations with people around a couple of different things where I'm in talking through like who gets access to what. And I'm like, yeah, of course I want my kid to have a lot of opportunity. And also I'm real aware I'm raising a white boy, like the mm-hmm. world will be his oyster. So I'm not going to like fight extra for what he's going to have opportunity for because he's going to be centered his whole life. So yeah. that doesn't mean I'm going to ignore his needs, but I'm going to be conscientious around like who else are we going to intentionally center in our family, in our household, in the way we center others in our community, because there's plenty of centering that's going to, ha- that has happened for my husband and I, and that will happen for him just by virtue of being born in, you know, in a middle-class white family. That's lovely, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for calling that out and for doing that and for being so intentional about that. Thank you. It's because I learned from people like you. (laughs) (laughs) I want to touch on being a bad feminist because first of all, you pay homage to Roxanne Gay in this section and she's such an incredible person and writer. And I'm just obsessed with Roxanne Gay as a a figure, but she has a book called Bad Feminist. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about how to be a better bad feminist. Can you tell us all about how we, we can all be better bad feminists? Yeah, absolutely. It's my favorite topic. (laughs) Great, Uh, let's go. (laughs) And you're right, like uh, Roxanne Gay is incredible. Even following her on social media is so empowering on a daily basis. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is, like, we're never going to be perfect feminists, right? And I mentioned that it's like yoga, you know, you're never going to perfect every pose. It's about the practice of feminism, right? So we're going to keep failing. Like I, you know, like right now I'm looking at the roots in my hair as we speak, you know, thinking <laughs> of like, you know, and, you know, wanting to color it and then questioning myself every time I go to color my hair, like, why do I do this? I'm so bound to the idea of youth and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, punish myself and say, okay, maybe next month I'll stop, you know. So this constant thing of I'm a bad feminist because I haven't fully realized feminism because, right, I don't get this aspect of feminism, etc. But really, 
I've come to this point where I feel like to be a feminist and, you know, whether you're doing it's to recognize that on some days, like on Tuesday, you're going to be a bad feminist on Thursday, you might be better or the other way around, <laughs> but also to forgive yourself. And that's mm -hmm. in one of the latest, later chapters that, you know, this concept of forgiving ourselves is so important. And I talked to a Buddhist friend of mine about the concept in Buddhism of forgiving and forgiveness toward others, but also forgiveness toward ourselves, right? So forgive yourselves for the mistakes you've made as a feminist the time when you were catty toward a friend or you, you know, talked about someone and the clothes she was wearing or, you know, all these little ways or that you weren't supportive of, uh, uh, you know, and I talk about this with the men who want to, who are feminists and say, you know, when did you step up to be supportive? Did you go to the woman after the meeting and say, hey, I hated the way that, that guy talked to you or, hey, I hate that you got uh, passed over for that promotion? Or did you actively do something about it in that situation? Or are you doing something, you know, to empower without performing feminism, mm -hmm. right? So all those aspects of feminism uh, to me are really important and we're going to fail at them at some point and we're going to have to fall down and get up again and say, okay, bad feminism moment, you know, and I can do better. So that forgiveness and, and even the fun aspect of it, right? That mm -hmm. recognizing like, oh my goodness, I've come such a long way because look how I used to be. And, you know, one of the things for me was standing in solidarity with women and being happy for other women, like loving other women, loving when they succeed instead of some, what they tell us is a Darwinian or like, you know, thing of being jealous of other women, envious and wanting them to not do better because I look better. I've gotten rid of that and it feels so good. It's yeah. such a relief to know that I can just be fully loving and supportive and celebratory of other women and their successes and supportive of them in their moments of failure. I can show up like that for them. It takes such a lot of headspace, like time and energy out of your head, like because you don't have to worry about being like watching other people with envy you can just yeah. say hmm, my default is going to be happy for other mm -hmm. women and others you know so that itself is like such a big triumph you know and so recognizing oh my god I used to be jealous I used to be all these things and now I just have this energy where I can celebrate everyone and feel happy I yeah love that. that's good bad feminism <laughs> Yeah, I love that so much. I love the example that you just gave of having love be the default, having support be the default, having like an assumption of good intention be the default. So if you know, if your friend is telling you something, you're like, I feel like they're bragging instead of assume good intent, assume that like they are wanting someone to celebrate with them. And they chose to like, trust me with this information. I think that there's so many ways to create power for ourselves independently. And then also then as women at large, when we choose to do that. And I think to your point, I think there's so many great ways to show up in feminism that there doesn't have to be, there's not a right way or a wrong way. It's not checking certain boxes. I was laughing over your example of your roots because I, in the last couple of weeks, as I've been doing Instagram stories, I'm like, when did my eyes get all these wrinkles? Like, do I need to get Botox? And then same thing. I'm like, well, but like, if I'm a feminist, is that bad? Like, should I, should, if I get Botox, do I talk about it? Do, is it a secret? 
And then, I, and then I'm like, but or is this against my core values? Should I never get, but yeah. So right. Like there's so many ways for this to look. And it's funny okay. as we evolve, we're going to be questioning ourselves and having to return to, okay, who do I want to be in this moment or this instance, whether it's something as trivial as Botox or dyeing okay. our hair, or it's something like really looking at how am I going to engage in an interaction, in a relationship, in an uncomfortable conversation and really intentionally be a supportive citizen, feminist, you know, activist, ally, all those things in that moment. Um, Absolutely. Yep. So many layers. Yep. Why I want to touch on intersectionality before we wrap up here, because I think it's so important. Why is it important for men and boys to be intersectional feminists? And can you just define that term before you respond to that? Because I think that would be helpful for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So intersectional feminism, the concept has developed over a period of time, but Kimberly Crenshaw is the activist scholar who came up with the term. And she talks about intersectionality is like, you know, when you have, so she came up with this concept when she was studying how an organization, you know, they were saying that, oh, we have black employees and that we are promoting black employees, et cetera. But they found that they had black men who were being nurtured into positions of leadership or being employed, but black women were not, right? So what then does it mean that you may be thinking that you're working for feminism, right? But you might be working only for white feminism, right? That what are the concerns of feminism, right? And then how does it intersect with race? How does a black woman experience the workplace versus a white woman? And you may just be calling it sexism and, and things, but it might be sexism lace connected with racism, right? Mm -hmm. So we've all seen these. And as a BIPOC woman, as a woman of color myself, I've seen a lot of this. And it's just like, oh my goodness, I'm not able to separate out uh, where this is about sexism and where this might be about racism. And then when I have conversations with some of my white feminist friends and they say, oh my God, that part of it didn't ever happen with me. I was not asked to send in extra material of, you know, my credentials, but they find that all the people of color were, right? So Mm -hmm. that's uh, racism intersecting with with sexism, right? Or it's pure racism, you know? So Mm -hmm. that's how society is built. And especially in America, we see that to be true. And it's so much more of it is like, you know, when uh, the first women's march, I remember marching in the streets and we we were sloganeering for women, And then there were these Black Lives Matter protesters within us as well. And they were saying Black Lives Matter. And some of my white women friends fell silent and said, come on, this is about women. And I was like, how can it be all about women and then not be about Black Lives Matter? Because are you not thinking about the Black women that are being killed because they are, you know, because of racism? Are you not thinking about the Black mothers who want their kids to come home? So if you're talking about women, you have to talk about all women and see Mm -hmm. that there are different concerns, right? So that's what an intersectionality is. So you cannot separate out, you cannot be fighting for one without the other. So the problem is white male supremacy. And it's not like all white men, let's like, Mm -hmm. you know, get rid of them and everything will be great. White male supremacy exists even in me, where I may choose to read a white male author's book, you know, as like, oh my God, this would be great. I should read this, right? And expect it to be great literature versus a black woman's book or, you know, other writers of color. And so that is white male supremacy and it could exist in, and it it succeeds because we all buy into it, including people of color. and, And then sort of they turn it on, we turn it on each other, right? just like women turn things on each other. And that way we keep patriarchy in uh, thriving, right? So for a man or a boy to be a feminist, 
he has to entirely think of this whole spectrum of race, gender, class, right? So class is becoming more and more, I am learning and deepening my commitment to looking at capitalism and how that intersects with feminism, right? So even if we talk about why are we going after women's wombs, right? Why does Roe v. Wade in America especially keep getting challenged? Why why does reproductive freedom for women keep getting challenged in America? Because America is such a capitalist country, you have to control women's wombs and you have to treat women as property in order for capitalism to be succeed. Women have to be domesticated, right? They have to continue to have babies so that they can keep providing and have this uninterrupted flow of workers who will continue to work, right? And support capitalism, support the uh, people who control the tools of production, right? So if we don't understand those things, we won't see why classism intersects with feminism and racism, et cetera. Men have to understand this because very often they are the ones that are recruited into the best places in capitalism, right? So white men, as you're raising a white boy, they are more likely to succeed in leadership positions in capitalism. If they are feminists and they understand intersectionality, they will be able to change and topple structures. Now, all this sounds like a lot of lecturing and a lot of, you know, complicated things, but really that's why we need them to be intersectional feminists because they will understand that you can't just say, let's, you know, you can't say, for instance, like, oh, So we must pay housewives, right? Like we can pay them a check. That's a capitalist response to a capitalist problem, right? Mm -hmm. You have to uh, question these things at larger structures so that you're not putting a Band-Aid on issues. And these men who will be for a while to come will be in positions of power. They have to understand it and really feel it. So, you know, if my son is planning this rally uh, in uh, for women's uh, reproductive rights in LA, your son could be planning that and bringing all his white male friends along, right? And that's what I can dream of. Like that, yeah. it just makes me so happy, and it makes me really proud when uh, white men at my institution get it and start working toward it. I'm like, go, 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 right? Because you are going. People are going to listen to you when you speak. They may not listen to me on my little podcast here, but they're going to listen to you no matter where you are. So that's why they need to be intersectional feminists. Long answer. Oh my gosh, but- it was such a good answer though. And I want to give just a quick example that I think supports what you just said that I think might be helpful as well. I think what we've done over time, I don't know that we've done an excellent job of it or men, I should say, I don't think that men have necessarily done an excellent job of it, but I think that there are groups, organizations led by males that have awareness now of like, oh, we should make sure there's always a woman or some women on the team. So you look at like, you know, an organization and there's the boardroom table of 10 people and it's like, seven guys and three women. And they're like patting themselves on the back. Like, look at, we got Mm -hmm. some women in here. They're like, we won. We checked the box. Mm -hmm. We're doing great. And what you're saying is it's not just checking that box. That's a really cute first step. (laughs) And have you also looked to see why are there no people of color sitting at this table? Why are there no people with disabilities sitting at this table? Why are there no people with neurodiversity sitting here? How are we taking care of the moms who are sitting here? If there's three women here, how are we accommodating for moms? And how, like all these different layers that are expert, like those things all deserve and require attention 
as much as just checking a box of like, we brought some women to the boardroom table. Like that's like yeah. a 19, you know, 82 response. Let's look at a 2022 response right. of really bringing in, of having all these layers of consciousness around. And this is like, what does it mean to be an ally? And what does it mean? Like, there's so many layers to all of it. And we were talking earlier about Ruchika Cholshian's book, mm-hmm. right? Inclusion on yeah. purpose. And that's why it becomes important because when we have this inclusion, what does that inclusion look like? What is the experience that these people are having on the board, right? Are they just adapting to you and sort of getting sort of co-opted into your way of being, you know, white male supremacist leadership? Or are they changing things? Or is your organization changing in order for them to thrive as leaders, right? This is yeah. something I struggle with as a, an associate dean at my institution as well. Now, what are we changing in order that women of color can be leaders and are not just falling into the same step that wasn't working for other people, right? It was working for white male supremacy, but it wasn't working for other people. So how are you changing things so that we are making these people thrive and their ideas thrive so that the institution thrives, right? So that the experiment thrives. Yeah. Absolutely. I will make, I'm glad you brought up Rushika's book. I will definitely link to that. Her book is inclusion on purpose and I'm trying to get her on the show as well. (laughs) So I will link to her book in the show notes. And we also mentioned Roxanne Gay's book, about feminists, which I'll link to in the show notes. And then let's talk about your book. So who should go and buy your book? Where can they find it? Well, everyone, right? Yes, of course. (laughs) That was the right answer. I was setting you up. (laughs) But I say that, you know, everyone that has an influence on how men and boys show up in the world, which is really everyone, right? We all have, we all know men, we all know boys, right? And, but one thing that surprised me is how many men have written to me after the book was published, after the hardcover was published a year ago, I've heard from so many men from all walks of life, from different parts of the world, saying that the book changed them and made them think about all the ways in which they have done harm and how, you know, some of them have ended up losing their families, losing their wives and kids. And I felt like no one asked me to do better. And I didn't know Mm. that I was making these mistakes. And if I could go back, I would do it differently. Young women have been writing to me saying, I don't ever plan to have a son. I don't plan to have kids, but I'm giving this book to all the men I know. And I want any man that ends up being my husband or my boyfriend to have read this book, right? So I didn't even think of that. I didn't think that those were the people that were going to be impacted. But yes, buy for, you know, your friend who's going to be a mom, who's going to have a baby, who's going to have a son, buy it for yourself, buy it. I think it's, again, of course, I want everyone to buy it. But I do think that this is, you know, raising feminist men or feminism for men is part of a larger enterprise. And I think buying it for the men in your life, like surprising them and saying, okay, just read it, right? I think that might be a good idea as well. It's also so conveniently timed um, for the paperback to come out right before Father's Day. Yes, (laughs) yes. So we'll just drop that like hint right there for anyone who needs a Father's Day gift. Be like, here's your golf clubs and also here's a book for you. (laughs) Oh, lovely. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Oh my goodness, Sonora. This has been such a fantastic conversation. I'm so incredibly grateful. Tell people where they can find you and connect with you. How you have a couple different places online where you show up. Yes, I'm on Twitter as Prof Sonora Ja. I'm on Instagram as Sonora Ja One. I'm on Facebook. You can follow me there. So yeah, those are three places. And I have a website, w- uh, sonoraja.com. Got it. We will have that all linked up in the show notes as well as having the book linked up as well. So people can grab that easily and quickly. People can go to shamelessmom.com, click on the episode with Sonora Ja and get all those links and have easy access to everything. Final question, Sonora, how are you currently showing up as a shameless mom? 
Oh my goodness, I'm being shameless about everything. I posted a picture of myself in a bathing suit. I was so excited about that. That was not, love that's it. not really me. And I'm also being very shameless about my son. Like, you know, he's spending a lot of time being an activist rather than being earning a living. And in my South Asian community, that's kind of like, what are you kids doing? Oh, so-and-so is like so successful. And I'm going to be totally shameless about my son following his dream and his life, you know, and not wanting him to be something. So I'm going to be shameless for him. I'm going to be shameless for me. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much for being here. When you write the next book, you have to come back and we'll talk about it. And promote it. This was so fantastic. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing and really, really grateful for your time today. I'm grateful for this. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep. Oh, get out of their life gunk. 
and let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it.